In the year 1960, some struggling high school musicians in a little fledgling rock band arrived in Hamburg, Germany. And there, these young musicians met a man named Bruno. Bruno was a club owner who had hired this young band to play in his club. And here's what Bruno told this, this young band. I'm going to have you play extended sets. Now, that means somewhere between five to eight hours worth of music. And I want you to do that seven days a week. And by the way, I've booked you for multiple weeks on end. So this young band hearing this, even though the pay wasn't that great, the venue wasn't that impressive, and the crowds weren't necessarily packing it in at that point, they jumped in and played and played and played. And over the next two years, they would travel to Germany and play these long sets seven nights a week for weeks on end. And, and, and by the time 1964 rolled around, this emerging rock band finally made it into the American music scene. And by this time, they had played live together an estimated 1,200 times. And don't miss this. Most bands today play live together less than that in their entire career. And for this young band, they were, they were just beginning to even approach their greatest successes. Because in 1964, this young band who called themselves the Beatles broke into the U.S. music scene and changed rock and roll history forever. Malcolm Gladwell writes in his book Outliers about this, this season in Germany that the young Beatles had. And about the fact that when they first arrived in Germany, the Beatles weren't that good. They, 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 they weren't that impressive as musicians. They weren't that disciplined. And the longest show they'd ever played together was about an hour long. But after two years of five different trips to, to this club where they would play and play and play and play, well, they were masters of the craft. They were disciplined and they were a whole different band. Gladwell argues this was the catalyst that finally made the Beatles the Beatles. And, and, and what, what, what did the Beatles become? They became, if the stats are right, the best-selling band in history, having sold somewhere between 600 million and 1 billion units worldwide. They wrote and recorded some 237 original songs, not to mention dozens of covers on top of that. And I'm sure most of us know or recognize many of those songs. But for the next four weeks, we're going to look at a different collection of songs, 150 of them to be exact. And these aren't songs that have just been around since the 60s. No, these are songs that have been sung, performed, recorded. The lyrics have been read by billions of people for dozens of centuries. I'm talking about the Psalms, the songbook of the Bible. And that's where we're going to be for the next four weeks in a series called Keep This on Repeat. I want to welcome everybody who's here. And whether you are here at our North Richland Hills campus or you're, you're watching online or maybe you're listening on podcast later, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're listening in. And if you're brand new, I'm especially glad that you're here. First of all, way to go making it here on a holiday weekend. Second of all, we're starting out a brand new series, so we're all at square one. So you're in a good place if you're not exactly sure what's going on. We're all starting at square one on this series. 
Now, I, I'm pumped about this whole series about being in the Psalms. And, and so I worked with our team to kind of create a couple of extra resources that I think will enhance your experience in the Psalms over the next four weeks. If you go to thehills.org or to facebook.com slash thehillschurch, our Facebook page, you'll find links to discussion questions for every lesson, as well as links to our, uh, our brand new church app that will actually send you push notifications to give you updates about, uh, about uh, reading God's word or stuff going on. So that's helpful. Also, many of you know that we're in a year in which we've been challenged to read one million chapters of the Bible. And as we're, we've hit the midway point, we're on the back nine here, starting in July. And so we are issuing a Psalm a day reading challenge. It is our prayer, my hope, that every person who's part of the Hills Church will read one psalm a day over the next four weeks. And I think we'll all be better for it. And I hope you log it at one million chapters dot com. Now, last thing, this is just a cherry on top because I'm just super pumped about the series and wanted to do something special. Uh, I have recorded four different videos that will be posted on the Facebook page every Wednesday over the next four weeks. And they are videos I recorded in Israel. And so I wanted to bring the land where the Psalms were written to Tarrant County, to Texas, to wherever you're listening in from. So you can get that at our Facebook page midweek throughout this series. As you can tell, man, I'm, I'm excited. I've been reading and studying in the Psalms and I've noticed a pattern. The songwriters kept singing about how they were going to keep singing. They kept praising about how they were going to keep praising. They kept praying about how they were going to keep praying. Take a look at a few of these passages so you understand what I mean. Psalm 16 says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. Psalm 34, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Psalm 61 says, I will ever sing in praise of your name. And Psalm 119 says, I will always obey your law forever and ever. This theme of repetition kept repeating itself. And I think it's, it's probably because the psalmists knew something that the Beatles would later discover. And it's this results require repetition. Results require repetition. I mean, if, if you're not necessarily someone who believes in God or maybe you're just checking out this whole church thing, I'm glad you're here. But I hope that all of us, wherever we're at on the spiritual spectrum, can agree with this point. It's just a point about life in general. Results require repetition. Think about it. Nobody expects to go to the gym one time and work out one time and suddenly be in shape. Now, after what some of us ate over the weekend and our second and third helping of pie, we wish that were true, but it's not. Why? Because results require repetition. Some of you have children or worse, you have teenagers. And when you ask a teenager to clean their room, how many of you parents expect that just saying that one time, it's magically going to happen? I don't think so. Why? Because results require repetition. But this theme is true in Scripture as well. Uh, besides the Psalms, the, in the, throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, their eventual faith and trust in God, that result only came after repeated teachings and warnings and guidance and retelling of stories by God himself over and over and over again. Why? Because results require repetition. 
That idea is going to flow through the next four weeks as we look at the Psalms. Each week we'll look at a spiritual rhythm that the Psalms model and that I think God wants us to keep on repeat. And this week we're talking about honest prayer. Now I grew up as a preacher's kid and uh, thank you, just pray for me about that. But I I grew up as a preacher's kid so I, I can think of a lot of different Prayer verses that got quoted about prayer. But perhaps the one that that comes to mind first and foremost for me is Luke 5, 16. I've heard this verse many times. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now, as a kid, I always pictured Jesus like he's hiking up a mountain or something. You know, he's looking out over the sunrise, like something that's kind of serene and picturesque. And I always wondered, like, did that mean I was doing prayer wrong if I was like sitting with my family at the dinner table or praying before going to bed because I hadn't withdrawn to a lonely place? I hadn't climbed a mountain or something. But I don't think that's the point. For, for Luke, I don't think initially that that's, that's the, the main thing he, that, that he wants us to take away about prayer, that you need to go climb a mountain. I think that he's wanting to make the example of Christ as clear as possible. Jesus kept prayer on repeat in his life. But for a lot of us, it's just not that easy. I did a social media experiment this week, and I asked people to finish the following sentence. Prayer is hard for me because. Here's how a couple people finish that sentence. Prayer is hard for me because I get distracted. Prayer is hard for me because I don't make time. Prayer is hard for me because I don't want to think about the stuff I should probably pray about. Prayer is hard for me because it feels selfish to ask God for stuff. Prayer is hard for me because I don't know how to pray. You know, prayer is one of those topics that seems so fundamental to what it means to have faith in God, to follow Jesus, that it often is, is modeled inside of a church context, sometimes more than it's actually taught about or talked about or explained. So if you're, if you're a new person, and you can, you can end up coming into church and, and going, what, what is this whole prayer thing? I think this doesn't seem very productive. I, I don't exactly understand. I mean, people, people are, are bowing their heads. They're, they're folding their hands. They're, they're whispering or maybe talking or just thinking their thoughts to God. Or, and then when everybody's gathered together, one person prays, but they all bow their heads. So does that count as prayer for everybody? Or is that just one person's prayer? And how does God you know, interact with all those other prayers happening at once? What is prayer about? What's happening inside of prayer? And that's why I'm glad that we have the Psalms. Because they are not only a songbook in the Bible, but these are written prayers that have been used as prayers for a long time by Jews and Christians alike. So turn to Psalm 13. We're going to look at a prayer inside of Scripture. And as you're turning there, I'll just say, as I've been looking at prayer inside of the context of the Psalms, and if you're wondering, man, what, what happens inside of prayer? I think one of the biggest takeaways and the way that I'd sum up what I saw inside of Psalm after Psalm after Psalm and what we'll see in Psalm 13 is this. Prayer is where my honesty wrestles with and surrenders to God's truth. That when I decide to pray, when I, when, I, when I choose to keep honest prayer on repeat in my life, then my honesty wrestles with and ultimately surrenders to God's truth. 
And we're going to look at this in Psalm 13, starting in verse 1. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Some of you are already thinking, are you allowed to start a prayer like that? Like, there's no dear God, and uh, it doesn't seem very reverent. I, I don't know that I've ever started a prayer like that. How long, God? You going to hurry up? What's going on? Have you, did you forget about me? It's just kind of an intense way to start a prayer. More than that, take a look at maybe some notes that might be in your Bible. Maybe they're at the bottom, or, or maybe they're, they're, they're right before verse 1 actually starts. In my Bible, it says, For the director of music. Now, that's a clue that this psalm... Those lyrics were sung in public worship. That's kind of weird. I mean, we, we sing a lot of encouraging and uplifting stuff, but here, this psalm was used in public worship. But it also, it also has the, um, the author of the psalm underneath. For me, it's, it says, A Psalm of David. That name is, is probably familiar to some of you. David is a legendary king of Israel. More than being a king, he was also a musician and a songwriter. And a lot of the Psalms, including Psalm 13, are, uh, are written by David, accredited to him. Now, David had plenty of reason to ask God how long. As a young boy, he was anointed to become king of Israel, told by a prophet of God, anointed that he would be king. But that doesn't come true for a long time. David had to wait. He had to wait for a while. In fact, he waited 15 years after his anointing before he even became king of a smaller kingdom called Judah. And then it was another seven or so years after that that he eventually became king of Israel, like God said. 22 years of waiting. David had plenty of reason. Say, God, it's, it's been five years doesn't look like I'm going to be king right now. God, it's, it's been a decade and I'm not a king. Have, did, you, did you forget about me? God, it's been 14 years and I'm not king of anything. God, it's been 20 years and I'm still not king of Israel like you said I'd be. David had a reason to come to God and just be honest in prayer. And if you feel weird about that, if this seems intense right off the bat, I hope that Psalm 13 is a permission slip for you to be honest with God about your questions, to bring those to him, because we've got good reason to ask how long today. God, how long are there going to be news headlines that I want to hide from my kids? God, how long are there going to be cancer wards that are full of patients? God, how long are we going to sing about and talk about the return of Christ? God, how long are we going to have to go to funerals? God, how long? I don't know what your how long is, but we all have them. Something that we've been waiting on from God. Something we've been expecting, hoping for. Maybe it's something you saw in Scripture and you felt like, okay, this is a promise from God, but you've been waiting. For David, he's not done asking questions. In verse 2, he says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? For David's season of waiting, well, he wasn't just sitting around having a cushy life while he's waiting to be king. David was persecuted. 
As a young boy, there's a famous battle, probably all of us have heard of it, David versus Goliath. And David defeats this Philistine warrior named Goliath. It's great victory for Israel, but that's bad news for David because his popularity skyrockets and the reigning king Saul becomes very jealous. So Saul decides he doesn't want competition in the kingdom and so he wants to get David out of the picture. And he tries to kill David personally. He sends people after David. He just wants David dead. And so David ends up spending most of his time after, after Saul begins to attack him. He lives like a fugitive, hiding in houses and caves, being chased down like a dog, a life on the run. And David experienced a dissonance of, of having this promise from God, you will be king. And then having everything else in life look like it is not going to happen. You experienced that dissonance before? Maybe you've you've been expecting something from God. You've been praying for something about your marriage, about your career, about your family, about your kids, and, and and you've just been hoping and praying and waiting on God and thinking this is true, this is good, this is based out of what I believe you've, you're teaching me in your Word, and yet you have a dissonance of feeling like, wait a second, God, I'm I'm trying to believe and follow what you've what you've told me and what you're teaching me, but. But everything else in my life says this is not going to happen. Everything else in my life says I should give up now. Everything else in my life says I should, I should just assume you forgot. And for David, that dissonance leads him to a place of finally, in verse 3, making a major request of God. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. David just gets up in God's face even more and says, hey, look at me, pay attention to me, talk to me here. And then he he lists out specific concerns that he has. He's looking at the situation of Saul and all all of Saul's men, the king's men chasing after him. And David says, look, they're going to brag about me when I'm done. Unless you step in, I am done for. In fact, they're not going to throw me a funeral. They're going to throw themselves a party when I'm out of the picture. Maybe, Maybe you're like that person who said, prayer's hard for me because it feels selfish to ask God for stuff. I hope that Psalm 13 is a picture and an example of being able to look at God and pray to Him and say, God, honestly, I need you right now. God, honestly, I need you to step in because here's what's going to happen if you don't. Here's how things are going to play out if you're not with me, if you don't don't intervene in this scenario. God, I need your help now. But for some of us, the idea of praying that way, it just... It just doesn't connect with what we thought about prayer or it doesn't it doesn't really connect to how we deal with our emotions during trying times. So so if you don't pray and maybe maybe that's where some of you are, maybe you'd be willing to admit, okay, prayer is just kind of foreign to me. Like I don't I don't pray by myself. Pretty much the only time I pray is if I'm at a worship service or if I end up at lunch with one of those families after church who has to pray before every meal. But otherwise, I'm not I'm, I'm just not really somebody who prays. Maybe instead you'd say, no, I'm I'm a praying person. I, I do. I, I believe in prayer. But but yeah, I mean, honestly, some of my prayer just has become 
you know, tied to meals and, and, and bedtime. And it's not really been something where I've, I've been honest with God, just more of where I've kind of working through some motions. And, and yeah, I've just been busy lately. And so it's kind of fallen off the radar. Or maybe you'd say, no, no I, I believe in prayer, but I'm, I'm not in a place where I'm ready to pray right now. I'm too angry. I'm too hurt. I'm too worked up. I'm too stressed. Like that's the last thing I want to do. Well, here's the thing. In the most stressful, trying seasons of our lives, in the how long seasons, we have two options. We can pray or we can replay. We can choose option one and we can pray like David did. And we can just come and we can be honest with God. And we can let our honesty wrestle with and surrender to his truth. And we can claim true promises in Scripture and let that be what undergirds us and, and gives us confidence. And we can just know he's a, safe, he's a safe father to go to, to be to be honest with. That's option one. Option two is to replay. And by replay, I mean replay the pain. I've got a, an, an illustration that will try and help with this. The best thing I could come up with to help illustrate this idea of replay is with a guitar pedal. And, and here, here's what a lot of us will do. We'll take uh, something that hurt us or some stress, some, some trying time, and we will replay it in our head over and over and over again. Sometimes without even realizing that's what we're doing. So, so I, I've, got a, uh, I've got a guitar pedal here, and, and this guitar pedal is going to represent the human brain. Just stick with me. Now, this microphone is going to represent life. The things that, that, that happen to us or, or that we listen to that, that end up in our brain. Now, I know there's, there's some ways that we can filter what, what comes through here. We can choose what to watch on TV, what movies to go to, what, what podcasts or music to listen to. I mean, we, we, we can choose some things. But let's also be honest. There's a bunch that comes through here that we don't have control over. I don't have control over how my spouse is going to treat me today. I don't have control over whether or not my kids will be on their best behavior. I don't have control over what kind of mood the boss is going to be in when I go into work. I don't have control over what my friend might say when we have that argument. There's just a lot that happens to us that ends up in here that we don't have control over. The only thing we have control over is what to do with it. So a lot of us whether we realize it or not, ends up, end up choosing to replay the pain. So let's, let's say there's, there's a teenage girl. She's in high school. She's sitting across from her boyfriend. And it just seems like a great day. And she's happy with life. And then, then this boy looks up from his lunch. And he looks at her. And he says, I think we should break up. 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 Now, she makes some protests, but then he says, You're being really needy. 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 Now, for the rest of the day, this plays out in her head over and over and over again, right? I mean, tests, quizzes, classes, she can't hear any of it because that is echoing in her mind. And then she goes home and she says what happened. And mom and dad hug her and she cries and they say, Hey, it's it's going to be okay, honey. And slowly she starts to feel like, okay, maybe it'll be all right. And this is what we do. We use life to kind of distract us from what's replaying. But then late at night, she's in her bed by herself. And it's replaying in her mind over and over again. 
And here's what will happen. When we choose to replay the pain, the pain becomes a platform on which Satan can tell lies. He will use old wounds to tell new lies. So for this girl who's been rejected, Satan starts to tell these kind of lies. You're always going to be alone. 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 You are unlovable. 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 No one will ever want you. No one will ever want you. No one will ever want you. How could they? 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 Whether we like it or not, something is going to end up on repeat. And some of you listening right now have done that to yourself. Have replayed the pain to such a place where Satan used it as a platform. And he used old wounds to tell new lies. So you can pray. You can let your honesty and your hurt wrestle with and surrender to God's truth. Or, or you can replay that pain. And Satan will use old wounds to tell new lies. The choice is yours. Now, for, for David, he is, he's saying some stuff that probably some of us have said at, at one point or another. I feel like God doesn't pay attention to me. I feel like God's forgotten me. I feel like God and I, we're just far away from each other right now. And I'm worried about what's going to happen. And I don't know about what's around the corner. And, and there's just all these things that are making me so stressed. And, and I'm heartbroken and my soul is spent. Here's the problem. A lot of us have said that to someone else about God rather than just turning and saying it to God. David is willing to say it to God. And there's this amazing turn of surrender after verse 4 into verse 5. Here's what David says. But I trust. And David, how can you say that? I mean, for these first few verses, you're, you're complaining about God, you are arguing with Him, you are asking Him hard questions, and it sounds like you don't trust Him. But the fact that David would even bring it to God rather than to say it about God shows he trusts God. If you don't get anything else out of this lesson, I hope that you are willing to be honest with God in prayer and then say, though your heart might wrestle to believe it, but I trust David says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices. Really, David, suddenly you're rejoicing. A few verses ago, you're despairing. And now, now you're rejoicing? How, how is this possible? And for David, the reason to rejoice, my, my heart rejoices in your salvation, in the salvation offered by God. I believe that for David, the promise and the hope of a faithful God who would save him was better than the promise of a kingdom. I don't know what you feel like God has promised you, what you feel like God owes you, but I hope that it can always stand in perspective against the hope and the promise of salvation in Christ. That no matter how things would go in our families or in our work or in the rest of our life, no matter how things would go in our finances, no matter how things would go with, with, with whether or not we're, we're respected by the people we so want the approval from, no matter how those things would go, that we would, even through tears, rejoice in the salvation offered to us by Jesus Christ.
David finishes by saying, I will sing the Lord's praise. And this one is almost too much for me. How is it that David could could go from all these hard questions, all this pain, all this anguish, and then suddenly be ready to sing a worship song about God? For David, it's because, for he has been good to me. David clung to the truth that no matter how things were going in life, as one preacher said, God is always good, even if life isn't. And David could cling to that and let that be a reason to trust God with honest prayer and to worship him for who he is. I like how how one preacher put it. He said that prayer is surrender. It is not us trying to get God to, to follow what we want, but us realigning with his will. And here's, here's the picture he used. If, if you're on a boat and you throw out a hook and you hit shore and you start to pull, do you pull the shore to you or are you pulling yourself to shore? That's a picture of prayer. That we throw out our honesty and we hook it into God's truth and we wrestle and we ask and we beg and we demand. But as we do that, something active and powerful happens when we root ourselves in God's truth and we are realigned with his will, with his truth. And we can, like David, trust in his unfailing love, rejoice in his salvation and praise him for his goodness. But maybe you're listening and you're like, Taylor, that that sounds great, but it's not playing out like that in here. You don't know what God has allowed to happen in my life. You don't know what I've been through. And, And you're right, I don't. But all I could say is that David went through horrible times. And this is coming out of out of his life in which he lost loved ones. He lost kids. He lost all kinds of things, but he was willing to praise him. But forget David. Let's set David aside for a second and let's look back at Jesus. On the night before Jesus was going to be crucified, before he would give his life for you and me and pay for the sins of the world, Jesus showed us what honest prayer looked like. Look at Luke 22. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. For a lot of us, pain and anguish makes us pull away from wanting to pray, from wanting to talk to God. That's the last place we want to go. But for Jesus, in the midst of anguish, he leaned more into prayer. And you know what he prayed? Man, this just this 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 hit me and it's so powerful. Jesus showed us what honest prayer looks like in the garden because he starts off with his honesty and he says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Jesus himself, who knows God's truth, who knows that he needs to be sacrificed for the sins of the world, he starts with his honesty and says, God, I don't want this. Like, if if you will, just let this pass. I I don't want to go through this. I don't want to face this pain. I don't want to go through this kind of anguish. But then he surrenders to, he wrestles with and surrenders to God's truth. Even Even in his final free moments, Jesus shows us what prayer looks like. And because of Jesus Christ, because of his obedience, that he would go to a cross and pay for our sins and let his blood be shed and his body broken. Because of his obedience to God, that he would end up in a tomb for three days. And because of the power of God, that tomb would be emptied. And we can, like David, in whatever season we're in, say, God, 
I rejoice in your salvation. I trust in your unfailing love. I sing your praises because the empty tomb of Christ shows your goodness. It shows me what it means to pray even in the hardest of times. That's what honest prayer looks like on repeat. And if you're, if you're out there thinking, I, I get it, but I, I just I don't know how to pray. I don't know where to start or I don't know what to say because of what's going on in my life. Let the Psalms be your prayers this month. Download that Psalm a Day reading plan and just let these be your prayers. Read them. Learn how to pray. Let them anchor you in God's truth. And He will work in your life. And if you get, if you get frustrated, if you feel worn out from even trying one or two Psalms, I ask you, please push through because results require repetition. And you will learn what it means to let your honesty wrestle with and surrender to God's truth. You pray with me? Jesus, we, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy, for the way that you have time and time again shown your faithfulness to us. And even in the hardest and worst of times, we can say that you're good. We can say that your love is unfailing. We can say that there is joy in your salvation. God, will you help us through your Holy Spirit over the next four weeks just lean into these psalms. Lean into your word and discover your truth. And for anybody right now who needs to cry out to you, will you, through your Holy Spirit, give them that strength? Only you can enact true change. Only you can truly help our hearts surrender to you. We love you, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. If you'd stand and for, uh, for our prayer response team, will you take your places at this time? We've got some people who are ready to pray with you and maybe that's your next step. Maybe the best next thing you could do would be to have someone else pray Psalm 13 over you, to pray with you if you're in a season of hurt or pain. Or maybe if you want to know more about Jesus, about the Savior that we proclaim, about this joy of salvation, these people are ready to talk and pray with you. So as we sing a prayer together in worship, I'd ask that you'd come at this time if that's what you need to do.